Section 20 of Buff A Collie and Other Dog Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore Buff A Collie and Other Dog Stories by Albert Payson Terhune The Sunnybank Collies Here at Sunnybank, at Pompton Lakes in New Jersey, we raise thoroughbred collies. For many years we have been breeding them. For many years longer I have been studying them. The more I study them, the more I realize that there is something about a collie, a mysterious, elusive something, that makes him different from any other dog. Something nearer human than beast. And for all that, he is one hundred percent dog. There is much to learn from him, much to puzzle over, as perhaps the following discursive yarns about a few members of the long line of Sunnybank Collies may show. Greatest of them all was Lad. One would soon have thought of teaching nursery rhymes to Emerson as of teaching Lad tricks. Beyond the common babyhood lessons of obedience and of the place's simple law, he went untaught. And he taught himself, being that type of dog. For example, the mistress had been dangerously ill with pneumonia, in my book, Lad, a Dog, I tell how Laddie kept vigil outside her door, day and night, until she was out of danger, and how he celebrated her convalescence with a brainstorm which would have disgraced a three-month's puppy. Well, on the first day she was able to be carried out of doors, the mistress lay in a veranda hammock, with Lad on the porch floor at her side. Friends, several installments of them, drove to the place to congratulate the mistress on her recovery, and to bring gifts of flowers, fruit, jellies, books. All morning Lad lay there, watching the various relays of guests and eyeing the presents they laid in her lap. After the fifth group of callers had gone, the big collie got up and trotted off into the forest. For nearly an hour he was absent. Then he came back, traveling with difficulty, by reason of the heavy burden he bore. Somewhere, far away in the woods, he had found or revisited the carcass of a dead horse, of an excessively dead horse. From it he had wrenched two ribs and some of the vertebrae. Dragging this horrible gift along, he returned to the veranda, before any of us were well aware of his presence, the wind setting in the other direction. He had mounted the steps, and with one mighty heave, had lifted the ribs and vertebrae over the hammock edge and laid them in the lap of his dismayed mistress. Humans had celebrated her recovery with presents, and he, watching, had imitated them. He had gone far and had toiled hard to bring her an offering that his canine mind deemed all desirable. It was carrion, but it represented to a dog everything that a present should be. Dogs do not eat carrion. They merely rub their shoulders in it, on the same principle that women use perfumes. It is a purely aesthetic pleasure to them, and carrion is probably no more malodorous to a human being than is the reek of tobacco or of whiskey or even of some fifteen-dollar-an-ounce scent to a dog. It is all a matter of taste and education. Noting that his gift awoke no joy whatever in its recipient's heart, Lad was monstrous crestfallen. Nor from that day on did he ever bring Carrie into the place. He even abstained henceforth from rubbing his shoulders in it. Evidently he gathered from our reception of his present that it is not done. When Lad was training his little son Wolf to become a decent canine citizen, he was much annoyed by the puppy's trick of watching his sire bury bones and then of exhuming and gnawing them himself. Lad did not punish the puppy for this. 
he adopted a shrewder and surer way of saving his buried treasures from theft. Thereafter he would bury the choice bone deeper in the ground than had been his habit, and directly above it, just below the surface of the earth, he would inter a second and older bone, a bone that had long been denuded of all meat and was of no further value to any dog. Wolf, galloping eagerly up to the spot of burial, as soon as Lad moved away, would dig where his father had dug. Presently he would unearth the topmost and worthless bone. Satisfied that he had exhausted the possibilities of the cache, he dug no deeper, but left the new and toothsome bone undiscovered. By the way, did it ever occur to you that a dog is almost the only animal to bury food? And did you ever stop to think why? The reason is simple. Dogs, alone of all wild animals, dogs and their blood brethren, the wolves, used to hunt in packs. All other beasts hunted alone, or at most in pairs. When prey was slain, the dog that did not bolt his food with all possible haste was the dog that got the smallest share or none at all. When there was more food than could be devoured at one meal, he had the sense to lay up provision for the next day's dinner. He knew if he left the carcass lying where it was, it would be devoured by the rest of the hungry pack, so he buried as much of it as he could, to prevent his brethren from finding and eating it. Thus the dog, alone of all quadrupeds, still bolts his food in huge and half-chewed mouthfuls, and the dog buries food for future use. These two traits are as purely ancestral as is the dog's habit of turning around several times before settling himself to sleep for the night. His wild ancestors did that to crush the stiff grasses and reeds into a softer bed and to scare therefrom any lurking snakes or scorpions. Lad's talking was a byword at Sunnybank. Only to the mistress and myself would he dine to speak, but to us he would sometimes talk for five minutes at a time. Of course, there were no actual words in his speech, but no words were needed to show his meaning. His conversation used to run the full gamut of sounds, in a way that was as eerie as it was laughable. He could and did express every shade of meaning he chose to. Indignation or disgust was voiced in fierce grumbles and mutters that were run together in sentence lengths. Sympathy found vent in queer crooning sounds, accompanied by swift light pats of his absurdly tiny white forepaws. Grief was expressed in something too much like human sobs to be funny, and so on through every possible emotion, except fear. The great dog did not know fear. No one, listening when Lad talked, could doubt he was seeking to imitate the intonation and meanings of the human voice. Once the mistress and I went on a visit of sympathy to a lugubrious old woman, who had lived some miles from Sunnybank and who had been laid up for weeks with a broken arm. The arm had mended, but it was still a source of mental misery to the victim. We took Lad along on our call because the convalescent was fond of him. We had every cause soon to wish we had left him at home. From the instant we entered the old woman's house, a demon of evil mirth seemed to possess the dog. Outwardly, he was calm and sedate as usual. He curled up beside the mistress, and with head gravely on one side, proceeded to listen to our hostess's tale of the long and painful illness but scarcely had the whiningly groaning accents framed a single sentence of the recital when lad took up the woeful tale on his own account his voice pitched in precisely the same key as the speaker's he began to whine and to mumble when the woman paused for breath lad filled in the brief interval with the most heart-rendingly lamentable groans then continued his plaint with her and all the time his deep-set sorrowful eyes were fairly adance with mischief and the tip of his plumy tail was quivering in a tense effort not to betray his sinful glee by wagging. 
It was too much for me. I got out of the room as fast as I could. I escaped barely in time to hear the hostess moan. Isn't it wonderful how that dog understands my terrible suffering? He carries on just as if it were his own agony. But I knew better. In spite of Lad's affirmative groan and personal agony, Lad could never be lured into making a sound, and when the mistress or myself was unhappy, his swift and heartbroken sympathy did not take the form of lamentable ululations or of such impudent copying of our voices. It was just one of Lad's jokes. He realized as well as we did that the old lady was no longer in pain, and that she was a chronic calamity howler. That was his way of guying the mock sufferer. Genuine trouble always stirred him to the depths. But his life long he hated fraud. Lad's story is told in detail elsewhere, and I have here written overlong about him. But his human traits were myriad, and it's hard for me to condense an account of him. Then there was Bruce, hero of my dog-book of the same name. Bruce's pedigree name was Sunnybank Goldsmith, and for many years he brought local dog-show fame to the place by an unbroken succession of victories. A score of cups and medals and an armful of blue ribbons attest his physical perfection. But dog-shows take no heed of a collie's mentality, nor of the thousand wistfully lovable traits which make him what he is. When we carved on Bruce's headstone the inscription, The Dog Without a Fault, we referred less to his physical magnificence than to the soul and the heart of him. He was wholly different from Lad. He lacked Lad's d'Artagnan-like dash and gaiety and uncanny wisdom. Yet he was clever and he had a strange sweetness of nature that I have found in no other dog, that and a perfect one-man dog obedience and goodness. Like Lad, he was never struck or otherwise punished, and never needed such punishment. He and Laddie were dear friends from the moment they met, and each was the only grown male dog with which the other would consent to be on terms of cordiality. Bruce had a melancholy dignity behind which lurked an elusive sense of fun. For his children— he had many dozens of them, he felt an eternal disgust, even aversion. Let visitors start to walk towards the puppy-yards, and Bruce at once lowered his head and tail and slunk away. When a group of the puppies, out for a gallop, caught sight of their sire and bore down gleefully upon him, Bruce would stalk off in utter gloom. Too chivalric to hurt or even to growl at any one of the scrambling oncoming babies, he would nonetheless take himself out of their way with all possible haste but on occasion he could rise to a sense of his duties as a parent, as when one of the young dogs was left tied for a few minutes to a clothesline three summers ago. The youngster gnawed the line in two and pranced merrily away on a rabbit hunt, dragging ten feet of rope with him. When I came home and saw the severed clothesline, I knew what must be happening somewhere out in the woods. The dangling rope was certain to catch in some bush or stump, and the puppy in his struggles would snarl himself inextricably. There, unless help should come, he must starve to death. For twenty-four hours two of the men and the mistress and myself scoured the forests and hills for a radius of several miles. We looked everywhere a luckless puppy would be likely to entangle himself. We shouted ourselves hoarse, in hope of an answering cry from the lost one. After a day and night of this fruitless search, the mistress and I set off again, this time taking Bruce along. At least we started off taking him. After the first hundred yards, he took us. Why I bothered to follow him, I don't yet know. He struck a bee-line through woods and brambles, traveling at a hard gallop, and stopping every few moments for me to catch up with him. At the end of a mile, he plunged into a copse that was choked with briars. In the center of this he gave tongue, with a salvo of thunderous barks. 
twice before I had searched this copse, but at his urgency I entered it again. In its exact center, hidden from view by a matted screen of briars and leaves, I found the runaway. His rope had caught in a root. He had then wound himself up in it, until the line enmeshed him and held him close to earth. A twist of it around his jaws had kept him from making a sound. He was half dead from fright and thirst. Having found and saved the younger dog, Bruce promptly lost all interest in him. He seemed ashamed, rather than pleased, at our laudations. On such few times as we went motoring without him, Bruce was always on hand to greet us on return. And his greeting took an odd form. Near the foot of the drive was a big forsythia bush. At sight of the approaching car, Bruce invariably rushed over to this bush and hid behind it. At least he bent his head until a branch of the bush hid it from view. Then, tail a-quiver, he would crouch there, not realizing that all of him except his head was in plain sight to us. When at last the car was almost alongside, he would jump out and stand wagging his plumed tail excitedly to note our surprise at his unforeseen presence. Never did this jest pall on him, never did he have the faintest idea that his head was the only part of his beautiful self which was not clearly visible. Bruce slept in my bedroom. In the morning, when one of the maids knocked at the door to wake me, he would get to his feet, cross the room to the bed, and lay his cold muzzle against my face, tapping at my arm or shoulder with his paw, until I opened my eyes. Then, at once, he went back to his rug and lay down again. Nor, if I failed to climb out of bed for another two hours, would he disturb me a second time. He had waked me once. After that, it was up to me to obey the summons, or to disregard it. That was no concern of Bruce's. His duty was done. But how did a mere dog know that the knock on the door was a signal for me to get up? Never by any chance did he disturb me until he heard that knock. He was psychic, too. Rex, a dog that I had had long before, used to sleep in a certain corner of the lower hall. He slept there for years. He was killed. Never afterward would Bruce set foot on the spot where Rex had been wont to lie. Time and again I have seen him skirt that part of the floor, making a semicircular detour in order to avoid stepping there. I have tested him a dozen times in the presence of guests. Always the result was the same. Peace to his stately, lovable, whimsical soul. He was my dear chum, and his going has left an ache. Wolf is Lad's son, wiry and undersized, yet he is as golden as Catherine Lee Bates's immortal Sigurd. He inherits his sire's wonderful brain as well as Laddie's keen sense of humor. Savage and hating strangers, Wolf has learned the law to the extent. No one, walking or motoring down the drive from the gate and coming straight to the front door, must be molested. Though no stranger crossing the grounds or prowling within their limits need be tolerated. A guest may pat him on the head at will, and Wolf must make no sign of resentment. But all my years of training do not prevent him from snarling in fierce menace if a visitor seeks to pat his sensitive body. Very young children are the only exceptions to this rule of his. Toddling babies may maul him to their heart's content, and Wolf revels in the discomfort. Like Lad, he is the mistress's dog. Not merely because he belongs to her, but because he has adopted her for his deity. When we leave Sunnybank, for two or three months yearly, in midwinter, Wolf knows we are going even before the trunks are brought from the attic for packing. And from that time on he is in dire, silent misery. When at last the car carries us out of the gate, he sits down, points his muzzle skyward, and shakes the air with a series of raucous wolf howls. After five minutes of which he sullenly, stoically, takes up the burden of loneliness until our return. 
The queer part of it is that he knows, as Lad and Bruce used to know, in some occult way, when we are coming home, and for hours before our return he is in a state of crazy excitement. I don't try to explain this. I have no explanation for it. But it can be proven by anyone at Sunnybank. The ancestral herding instinct is strong in Wolf. It made itself known first when a car was coming down the drive towards the house, at a somewhat reckless pace, several years ago. In the center of the drive several of the collie pups were playing. When the car was almost on top of the heedless bevy of youngsters, Wolf darted out from the veranda, rushed in among the pups, and shouldered them off the drive and up onto the bank at either side. He cleared the drive of every one of them, then bounded aside barely in time to escape the car's front wheels. He was praised for this bit of quick thought and quicker action, and the praise made him inordinately proud. From that day on, he has hustled every pup or grown dog off the drive, whenever a car has come in sight through the gateway. When the pups are too far scattered for him to round them up and shove them out of harm's way in so short a time, he adopts a still better mode of clearing the drive. Barking in wild ecstasy, he rushes at top speed down the lawn, as though in pursuit of some highly alluring prey. No living pup can resist such a call. Every one of the youngsters dashes in pursuit. Then, as soon as the last of them is far enough away from the drive, Wolf stops and comes trotting back to the house. He has done this again and again. To me, it savors of human reasoning. In the car, Wolf is as efficient a guard as any policeman. When the mistress drives alone, he sits on the front seat beside her. If she stops in front of any shop, he is at once on the alert. At such times, a woman acquaintance may come alongside for a word with her. Wolf pays no heed to the newcomer. But let a man approach the car, and Wolf is up on his toes and ready for trouble. If the man lays a hand on the automobile in the course of the chat, Wolf is at his throat. When I am driving with the mistress, he lies on the rear seat and does not bother to act as policeman, except when we leave the car in his keeping. People hereabouts know this trait of Wolf's and his aversion to any stranger and they forbear to touch the car when talking with us. Last year a friend came alongside while we were waiting one evening for the mail to be sorted. Wolf had never before seen this man, yet after a single glance the dog lost his usual air of hostility. There was a slight tremble in our friend's voice as he said to us, My collie was run over today and killed. We are mighty unhappy at our house this evening. As he spoke he laid his hand on the door of the car. Wolf lurched forward as usual, but to our amazement, instead of attacking, he whimpered softly and licked the man's face. Never before or since have I seen him show any sign of friendly interest in a stranger, not even to this same man, when they chanced to meet again a few months later. Bruce's son, Jock, was the finest pup, from a dog-show point of view, and in every other way, that we have been able to breed. Jock was physical perfection, and he had a brain, too, an abundant charm and a most intensely haunting personality. He had from earliest puppyhood all the steadfast qualities of a veteran dog, and at the same time a baby-like friendliness and love of play. Nor did he know what it was to be afraid. Always, in presence of danger, he met the menace with a furious charge, accompanied by a clear trumpet-bark of gay defiance. Once, for instance, he had been lying beside my chair on the veranda. Suddenly he jumped to his feet with that same gay, fierce bark. I turned to see what had excited him. A huge copperhead snake had crawled up the vines to the porch floor and wriggled on to within a foot or two of my chair. Jock was barely six months old, yet he flew to the assault with more sense than would many a grown dog. All dogs have a horror of copperheads, and Jock was no exception. 
By instinct he seemed to know what the snake's tactics would be, for he strove to catch the foe by the back of the neck before the copperhead could coil. He was a fraction of a second too late, yet he was nimble and wise enough to spring back out of reach before the coiling serpent could strike. Then, with that same glad bark of defiance, he danced about his enemy, trying to take the snake from the rear, and to flash in and get a neck grip before the copperhead could recoil after each futile strike. I put an end to the battle by a bullet in the snake's ugly head, and Jacques was mortally offended with me for hours thereafter for spoiling his fun. When he was eight months old, I took the little chap to Patterson to his first and last dog show. Never before had he been off the place or in a house. Yet he bore himself like a seasoned traveler, and he showed with the perfection of a champion. He won in class after class, annexing two silver cups and several blue ribbons. His peerless sire, Bruce, was the only collie in the whole show able to win over him that day. Jock beat every other contestant. He seemed to enjoy showing and to delight in the novelty and excitement of it all. He was at the show for only a few hours, and it was a triumph day for him. Yet cheerfully would I give a thousand dollars not to have taken him there, for he brought home not only as many prizes, but a virulent case of distemper, as did other dogs that attended the same show. Of course, I had had him, as well as all my other dogs, inoculated against distemper long before, and such precautions are supposed to be effective but the disease got through the inoculation and infected him. He made a gallant fight of it. Oh, a gallant fight! The fearless little thoroughbred! But it was too much for him. For five weeks he and I fought that grindingly losing battle. Then, in the dim gray of a November dawn, he lifted his head from my knee and peered through the shadows towards one black corner of the room. No one watching him could have doubted that he saw something lurking there in the dark. Sharply, he eyed the dim room corner for an instant. Then from his throat burst forth that glad, fierce, defiance bark of his, his fearlessly gay battle-shout, and he fell back dead. What did he see, waiting for him, there in the murk of shadows? Perhaps nothing. Perhaps the arch-fear and visible shape. Who knows? In any case, whatever it was, he did not fear it. He challenged it as fiercely as ever he had challenged mortal foe and his hero spirit went forth to do battle with it, unafraid. God grant us all so gallant an ending. His little mother, Sunnybank Jean, had never cast Jock off, as do most dog mothers when their pups are weaned. To the day I quarantined him for distemper. She and her son had been inseparable. A week after Jock's death, Jean came running up to me, shaking with glad eagerness, and led me to the grave where the puppy had been buried. It was far off and I had hoped she would not be able to find it. But she had been searching very patiently, whenever she was free, and now, when she had led me to the grave, she lay down close beside it, not despondently, but wagging her plume tail gently, and as if she had found at last a clue in her long search. Scent, or some other sense, told her she was nearer her baby than she had been in days, and she was well content to wait there until he should come back. All of which is maudlin, perhaps, but it is true. Perhaps it is also maudlin to wonder why a sane human should be fool enough to let himself care for a dog when he knows that at best he is due for a man-sized headache within a pitifully brief span of years. Dogs live so short a time, and we humans so long. This rambling tale of my dogs leaves no room to tell at length of the collie who was never allowed in the dining-room until after the dinner-coffee was served, 
and who came the length of the hall and up to the table the moment the maid brought in the coffee cups. How he timed it to the very second, none of us knew. Yet not once did he miss connections by the slightest fraction of a minute. Nor does it permit the tale of the collie pup who was proud of his stunt in learning to take the morning paper off the front steps and carry it into the dining-room, and whose pride in the accomplishment led him presently to collect all the morning papers from all the doorsteps within the radius of a mile and deposit them happily at my feet. Nor can I tell of the collie that caught and followed the trail of my footsteps through the rain along a crowded city street, in and out of a maze of turnings, and came up with me inside of three minutes nor of a long line of other collies, some of whom showed human intelligence, and some intelligence that was almost more than human. Not even of the clown pup that was so elated over rounding up his first bunch of sheep that he proceeded to round up chickens and cats and every living and round-upable creature that he could find. Nor of the collie who, taught to fetch my hat, was wont to romp up to me in the presence of many outsiders, bearing proudly in his teeth an assortment of humble, not to say intimate and humiliating garments. Comedian dogs, spectacular dogs, gloriously human dogs, Sunnybank collies, of every phase of heart and brain and soul, one common and pathetically early tragedy has waited or waits for you all. Among you, you have taught me more of true loyalty and patience, and courtesy and divine forgiveness and solid sanity, and fun, and a hundred other worthwhile lessons, than all the masters I've studied under. I wonder if it's heretical to believe that when, at last, my tired feet shall tread the other shore, a madly welcoming swirl of exultant collies, the splendid sunny-bank dogs that have been my chums here, will bound forward, circling and barking around me, to lead me home. Heretical or otherwise, I want to believe it. And if I fail to find them there, I shall know I have taken the wrong turning and have reached a goal other than I had hoped for. End of section 20. End of Buff. A Collie and Other Dog Stories by Albert Payson Terhune.